I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, your decision 2020 pundit. <laughs> and I'm Dean Dallow, your indecision 2020 pundit. <laughs> some people still haven't made their minds up. <laughs> Can you believe it? Actually, kind of a lot of people. Lots of people did not vote. <laughs> <laughs> Bummer. Well, that's fine, I guess. Um, it would be nice if they had. But it's just it's just too late now. Um, hey, we're doing an election episode. We're talking about the election. How crazy it has all been. We're recording this at, on Thursday, November 5th at 1026 p.m. So we don't know who won this dang election yet. But what we do know is that there's a Cheeto in the White House and he's <laughs> probably on his way out. Um, it's looking like Joe Biden's going to win. By the time you listen to this on Friday, chances are it's over. He won. But um, that's that's like the least exciting part of this um, whole thing. Uh, in this episode, we're talking to Tad DeLay and getting his hottest Marxist and psychoanalytic takes on Trumpism and just why, why people like him so much. <laughs> that's right. We're really glad to have Tad back. Uh, you might remember Tad from an episode we did a long time ago now on his book against what the white evangelical wants. You should definitely look that up. We mentioned this in the podcast, too, but it's always worth repeating. Tad has a free podcast about that book, um, and you can find a lot more about it on TadDelay.com, and we encourage you to do that. Uh, we mentioned Tad's book a lot, I feel like, on the show when we're talking, so uh, you can find out where we got those ideas, I guess, by going straight to the source. Um, we should also mention, uh, <laughs> so we joke that Tad Delay is our, our resident psychoanalyst on this podcast, and he is. Uh, but he is not a licensed therapist, so um, don't uh, take his advice in a therapeutic way. <laughs> I'll say it that way. Um, also, we he does recommend some some socialist stuff at the end, and take that though. That's in a right. Therapeutic way about socialism. That's right. He has a PhD, so he is a licensed um, socialist talker about her. Um, you can also find more election hot takes from us uh, behind our paywall on our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. It costs $2 a month to hear us each week again there, uh, just bullshitting our way <laughs> through this bizarre world that we live in. And this time around, uh, we are talking more about the election and you can hear Matt get extremely excited about Florida and the minimum wage. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, let's throw it on over to Tad. 
thanks for coming back on the show, Tad. The last time you were on, you talked to us about your very good book, Against What the White Evangelical Wants. Uh, your book really stuck with us on the podcast. We talk about it quite a lot still on a number of episodes in different contexts. It kind of opened up a lot of things, I think. And uh, for folks who don't know, Tad did an extended podcast himself, uh, drawing out some of the themes of the book. So people should check that out. Um, all that in mind, do you want to give us an overview of who you are for folks who may not have encountered you yet? And what kind of research do you do? Uh, what are you up to these days? Sure. Thanks for inviting me back on. I continually meet like new people who found me through the first interview that I did with you guys a while back. So I'm very excited to be back on and, and very flattered. So um, what am I doing now? I am, uh, well, I, I guess I, I'm known for like, I guess my work in like white evangelicalism and psychoanalysis and my more recent work is kind of uh, gauged more, I guess, towards climate change and kind of thinking through like the, the various catastrophes on the horizon. Um, and um, I, 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 I guess the simplest way to say it is that like a lot of my my academic research interests kind of like are, are, are an effort to keep my ear to the ground and pay attention to things that are happening around me right now, which um, ends up uh, meaning that I'm, I'm kind of going from thing to thing very often, but um, yeah, that, 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 that's very much what I'm interested in. So, uh, so right now it's a lot of fascism studies. It's a lot of climate change. It's a lot of thinking about like migration, and great, like the, 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 the great changes, like right kind of on the cusp, like right around the corner here. So um, that's, that's what I'm doing a lot of right now. And aside from that, I teach at a bunch of different colleges in uh, here in Colorado and also in, uh, Michigan, and I, I teach philosophy and religious studies, and uh, kind of like specialize in psychoanalysis and uh, Marxian theory. And uh, there you go. That's what I do. That's pretty good, um, Tad. Whenever I think about you, I'm always thinking about how you're the perfect person to explain um, why the bad situation we're living through is so bad, and like what's going on there. Um, that's why I really appreciate about you and your work. You're you're good at telling us why the bad things are happening. To us. <laughs> That's great. I well, I, again, that's flattering. I don't feel like I have a very good grasp of that, but I'm 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 trying to make sense of a of a catastrophe, I guess. So <laughs> there we go. Well, speaking of catastrophes uh, that we're living through, <laughs> we're recording this on the uh, the Thursday after the general election, <laughs> uh, and by the time uh, folks listen to this episode, it will you know probably be outdated already. Um, you know, by the time you listen to this, maybe it's already been called. Who knows? Who knows what wacky thing will happen next? But all that aside, uh, what's been your experience of the election so far? Like, how are you sort of processing this big catastrophe that's happening? Yeah, well, I, I actually, I mean, this might be a deeply unwise thing to say, but I, I feel like for the first time in maybe four years, uh, what's happening this in the latter half of this week is probably... Uh, like a, it creates a situation in which maybe we kind of know what the world might look like roughly a week out from now, like for once. Uh, maybe I use my words there, but um, but it, it seems like the the as far as we can tell from where we are on Thursday evening uh, on on November fifth in two thousand twenty, it looks like uh, Joe Biden will win the presidency. It looks like uh, the uh, Trump will put up a bit of a fuss and kind of go quietly into the night uh, without without much of a coup. After all, it's a bit of a pathetic little attempt at a power grab, but not much. And um, 
I don't know. Like I, I am, it, I am kind of in the, the position of feeling, kind of, I guess, transitioning to feeling just kind of overwhelmed at the sadness of how all of this has gone. And, uh, you know, there was, I, I am glad overall that, that it looks like Trump will be out of power, but I'm also kind of, um, I don't know, like it, uh, I don't want to kind of go like full doomer and, and just like kind of revel in the sadness, but, um, it is a, it is a, I think it's fine for people to kind of feel a, a bit dejected and upset about the, the trajectory of, of where this is going. Right. Um, we had an election where we had a choice between, you know, this kind of right wing, like vehement racist climate denialist, um, you know, sexist predator uh, on the one hand and a guy that was all of those things and just worse on the other. And, and, you know, the, you know, like it, it feels like bizarre to be kind of excited that the, the conservative one rather than instead of the fascist. And that, I mean, that's, that's a weird position for us to be in. Um, we are in the midst of, of what I think uh, the, there's a fair chance that historians will look back at as, as kind of, thinking of like as, as the lost twenties, uh, this, 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 like, you know, uh, because of the pandemic and the consequent economic, um, uh, effects, this is a, this is a catastrophic time that we're living in. Uh, and now we're looking down a presidency where, um, a conservative is going to be thwarted at every turn by these ultra right-wingers in the Senate that are not going to allow any sort of of relief uh, to happen, and that is going to be used against him. And I, I think that maybe more than anything is like I just I look at what's happening this week, and I, and I feel a great deal of sadness because we are looking down the barrel of four years of nothing, nothing but failure, and then probably uh, twelve years total. I would assume, uh, you know, whether those those next eight years are uh, a, the in, unlikely scenario of a Kamala Harris presidency or the more likely scenario, I think, of, of a Republican like comeback. Uh, we, are, we are looking at minimum 12 years until we could even begin to have the conversation about things like a, like a Green New Deal or Medicare for All or living wages to say nothing of the climate crisis. Uh, in, 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 in the, the, um, that, I mean, that, that is just overwhelming for me to kind of think about like how much time we have lost. And, and, it, and it's, it's kind of, um, I don't know what to say about that. And I, I know that a lot of people listening to this will have like a, a few more days advantage uh, knowing what has happened and kind of how things have unfolded. But my wager is that not a lot in terms of the, the long-term effects of the next few years will have changed by the time people are listening to this. And I just want to kind of name that whatever is happening, where you are listening to this, uh, we are in a bad situation and it, it is okay to feel, it is okay and normal. It's actually a, like there's something messed up if, if you do not feel probably a little bit sad about where we're at right now. Um, so um, I, I guess that's, that's kind of where I'm at. I, I, I guess just to kind of like wrap that up, I am kind of coming back constantly to thinking that uh, we just went through this this massively consequential election, and I'm constantly wondering if maybe the most consequential election of my lifetime was actually 2016, and we are we are on the other side of that into uncharted territory. 
so I'll I'll stop there. Yeah, well, I think it's um, it's great for you to name all those complicated feelings right off the bat. I think that's what everybody's trying to sort through is, I think, especially for Christians, right? How do you give yourself permission to feel bad? <laughs> Whether you think you've gotten out of Christianity or not, or you're still stuck in the middle of it, that programming is difficult to uh, sort out. So um, thanks for uh, encouraging people to, to at least um, have a little permission, maybe, to let themselves feel all those feelings. Uh, I think one advantage, one reason we really wanted to talk to you in particular, Tad, one advantage to your approach is that you do have such a effective vocabulary for parsing out all these weird affects that we're surrounded by, these psychological issues that underlie things. Um, and I thought maybe it might be helpful to um, pick them apart. You know, you've named this sadness. I think that's very important. Uh, I want to I'll, I'll throw you sort of a curveball of a weird affect that I've been feeling. And maybe you as a, a our great psychoanalyst friend, our resident Magnificast psychoanalyst, you can help us figure out what's going on in, in my brain or our brains. So, all right, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty going on. Um, Joe Biden didn't pull out a landslide. I mean, I, I hope he, he wins, whatever. We'll find out hopefully in the next few hours, even maybe while we're recording this. But uh, in any case, it's not a, a strong mandate. You know, it's not a strong referendum on Trump. Um, and that's very frustrating. Uh, in another sense, this is kind of like the scenario journalists have been talking about for weeks. So even in that uncertainty, there's kind of like this bizarre uh, preparedness to be patiently annoyed. Um, and I think I'm personally kind of addicted to all these like weird feelings and especially that uncertainty. And I want to sort of get your take on one. So as perverse as it is, I feel like I've noticed I, I sort of strangely enjoy the Democrats squirming through this uh, this extremely like half half assed victory, uh, even though, you know, I, I hope Trump leaves, of course. And I, I guess I'm my question to you is what's wrong with me, Tad? Why do I feel that way? Why do I enjoy watching the Democrats suffer like this? <laughs> it sounds like you want revenge. <laughs> I think, yeah, maybe like you want some vengeance. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, uh, you know, like my my therapist uh, regularly reminds me that um, the the body cannot tell the difference between uh, an imaginary or intellectual or real physical threat, right? Like that, I mean, the body responds to them the same way, right? And and I, and I think it's, it's it's good to like remind ourselves of that type of thing. Like you're like when you're feeling that hyper vigilance, like your body does not detect the the differences and, and is not very good at, at threat calculations it will simply respond because you are feeding it information that that there was a threat um but you know it's the same thing like i mean there is that like that uh sense of like uh i don't know like shadow foy like i i i would like my my opponent who could have had a much better world to to feel shame at how uh, abysmally they failed on the other right like joe biden seems to have severely hurt down ballot races the whole idea that instead of taking massively popular positions you instead take these like positions that nobody likes that are to the right of where most republicans are in order to get some mythological republican that's going to transfer over um you know like i mean for instance like florida is a great example right where like they vote to raise the minimum of wage but like vote against uh biden when like in a world where like literally two out of three voters are in favor of minimum wage like like a uh, increase like it's super super easy uh position to take 
these Democrats have shown themselves to be absolutely vacuous idiots who do not understand where actual working people are. Uh, uh, you know, like whether just it's it, it's mind boggling how I mean, like you, we're in a position where you can literally show people the data on where people are. Uh, in like what people want, and you can say like this left wing issue is a winner, and Democratic strategists will look at that and say, well, but like we won't be able to win Republicans that we're not going to get anymore anyways. Like you know, like if if we go that direction, and look like, at yeah, it's it's mind boggling, and like it, it is a, a bit exciting to see like their absolute uh, vacuousness at the end of the day, like uh, the absolute shame. Of the ineffectiveness, um, but the the horrors is they're not going to learn anything from that, right? Like um, we are just months away from beginning the phase of like don't insult Joe Biden because if you do, we're going to lose seats in in twenty twenty two, and and that's that's I mean that's where we're at, right? Um, so like the, there's no amount of like conclusive proof that is going to change this this dynamic. We have a we have two fundamentally conservative parties, one that is just like a little more insane than the other. And that, that is not going to change in the short term. Right. Yeah, I think so, man. The, uh, the thing that's been the most baffling and interesting to me in this election is that the minimum wage increase in Florida. Um, so in case y'all don't know about Florida politics or whatever, the minimum wage was increased in Florida (laughs) in this, uh, uh, this constitutional amendment. And that's cool and very good for working people. But uh, at the same time, uh, Democrats lost monumentally hard in Florida. Uh, not just Joe Biden, but like down ballot races, too, weren't great. Uh, it's even there's even some stuff coming out uh, now about how the Florida Democrats like really wanted to distance themselves from the minimum wage amendment because they thought, just like you said, Tad, that, you know, the Republicans wouldn't go for it. It's such an interesting thing. Um, and I mean, and maddening, absolutely maddening. Um, but I guess um, what what I'm interested in hearing from you about is is more about like that, that weird fantasy that Democrats have that like they need to like okay you have this whole article that you wrote that we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute about like the relationship between right wing Trump voters who who like you know they they know they're voting for someone who's going to hurt them mm-hmm. and like you know how that works out psychoanalytically but what's going on with the Democrats like what what's going on with these like Democrats who are um, I don't know like they. It, are are the Republicans the big other of the Democrats? Is, is that what's happening? Like, wh- why are they so beholden to this like absolutely bonkers fantasy that like um that that winning over Republicans is their way forward in electoral victory? Like, what's going on? Yeah, I mean that's that's like the that's the frustration of the left, right? Is that Democrats will always, as far as like I mean, like as long as I can remember, as like a politically interested person, Republicans will always pick like an interest and like trying like try they will always try to uh lure in the uh, like the ultra right before they give like the slightest concern to the center left right and and that's a that's a fundamentally very frustrating thing uh the position to be in and i like i don't know what to do with that i i think it's just it goes back to that idea that democrats think they're so fucking smart and 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 they're not right like i mean like and this, this is one idea that i i really 
like in in Lacan is, is sort of a bourgeois liberal. Like it's kind of a, like there actually is like an idea here that I like um, politically speaking, which is that when you look at the conservative and you see them simply as the duped, uh, what what you are more often than not doing is you are duping yourself. Like you you are falling for a con. When when you look at somebody and you think like how can that person uh, be so uh, like, like so goddamn stupid that they like don't believe in science. Uh, maybe they're actually screaming at you day and night, like what they actually believe, and and you're just like really bad at reading it. Um, and I, I, I think that that's kind of the position that Democrats are putting themselves in constantly. Is is and it's not just like the minimum wage, right? Like there's a there's a a very fascinating kind of. Uh, repetition of that like two-thirds majority, like like two-thirds of the American public wants to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Roughly two-thirds want to abolish the death penalty. Roughly two-thirds want uh, uh, Medicare for all. Uh, like there, There's a range of issues where roughly two-thirds, like the, the middle point kind of like centrist, uh, like independent voter wants this thing uh, which means that it's a winning issue, which means also that it's overwhelmingly a winning democratic issue, right? Like if you ran like like oh, like more than 80% of Democrats want Medicare for all right now, and that's even before this pandemic year, um, it, like, uh, like these are these are winning issues and Democrats simply look at it and just think like it cannot be the case because like, okay, and, and this, I think, maybe is an important point. Like, in the same way that Democrats, like, laugh at Trump for having his brain, like, locked in the 1980s, like, whatever culture war or, like, like various, like, skirmishes are kind of, like, locked in his mind right before his mind began decaying in the 80s or 90s or whatever. Um, like, Democrats have the same thing. They're just, like, a, a, like just a few decades behind, right? Like, Democrats are, are, are looking at, like, the the battle over healthcare 2008 to 2010 and thinking like, Oh no, in 2008, we had to say like, no, we're, we're not in favor of universal healthcare. We, we think that like on principle, a certain amount of population should not have access to healthcare. Um, and, and Democrats are still kind of locked into that space where they think that's a winning thing. Like you can win votes on just saying like on principle, a certain amount of the population should simply die of cancer every year. And, and that's, that's not what the American public is anymore. And, and it's, it's not a dialectical view. It's not a progressive view to, to think that people are simply locked in to this like archaic way of seeing the world, right? Uh, people move on, right? So um, I, I don't know, like my, I guess, uh, to kind of like wrap that up is my, I, I, I'm just highly skeptical of this, this view that people don't change, that like politics don't change, that con concrete like social relations can't change, and that people just like want whatever they, um, you know, whatever they should want according to like the way that the last, I don't know, 10 elections have gone when situations were completely different than they are right now. Yeah, I think as you're speaking, uh, that all makes a lot of sense to me. Um, maybe this is uh, me, again, just sort of uh, openly processing my my schadenfreude for the Democrats. But you, you mentioned, uh, you know, this perception that liberals have of conservatives as the duped, which we'll talk a lot more about, I think, in the back half of the episode. I think it's a really profound point. Um, but isn't there sort of a way in which, too, the Democrats themselves are, are a bizarre sort of... Uh, cultural group in the United States because 
a lot of people, I think, also want to see liberals as um, hopelessly duped. You know, uh, how could you possibly be so kind of stonewalled <laughs> against your own interests over and over again? But at the same time, uh, it's always, you know, if you're a Marxist, especially, I guess, the way you look at these things is always in terms of, uh, well, why does the ruling class do what it does? And in addition to these weird psychological calculuses, you know, like Nancy Pelosi is like literally a landlord, you know, like she has like a lot of real estate money. Um, and like uh, a lot of these Democrats have their their fingers in like health insurance pies, you know, like they, they don't want Medicare for all because it would also mean a, a blow to their own bottom lines to their own investments and things like that. And I wonder, you know, what's your read as a psychoanalyst who invests in, in both Freud and Marx uh, on how we sort that out, that the liberals, too, are maybe not just dupes, but they're also um you know, acting legitimately, kind of perhaps even wisely in their own political interests to our collective detriment. Yeah, yeah. When I just have, like want to jump in real quick, just to say, like, I am not like a, like a, like a, like qualified, like a licensed psychoanalyst. I didn't, of course, I'm, of course. I'm influenced by like psychoanalytic theory, but uh, yeah, yeah. But aside from that, I'm, uh, yeah, like it, it makes sense to me that Nancy Pelosi uh, views things as a boss, right? Like she, she. Uh, and makes her money through being a, a slumlord. And in that, like, so, like, of course you view things as the boss and you are fundamentally incapable of thinking of yourself as the bad guy in that situation, right? And, um, I mean, like, there's, there's something kind of interesting, I think, going on with, like, our, our like, battles over, over purity and, and who is who is like kind of like who comes out on top in terms of like who is a garbage person and a scumbag uh, versus who is like is kind of like pure like and there's a lot of kind of like discussion in various forms like I think we're going through a very kind of interesting and very important uh, conversation about that like ethically like as a culture um, right now but like definitely the people at the top uh, who kind of perform concern for the lower class, people like Nancy Pelosi or, or various like democratic figures who will have a lot of power, uh, like the, the, it's in their interest, of course, to uh, play this role where they are uh, very good at what they do, um, very like very concerned about the interests of their caucus and 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 so on and so forth. And and when you when you bring up something like a like a like a I don't know like a I, I'm thinking like like various California liberals like like Diane Feinstein Nancy Pelosi and so on. But when you bring up things like okay like the the world is uh, on a, on a on a death drive course and we need to make some very serious changes right now. Um, uh, what do they do? Well, they say like, well, don't bother me with that green dream, green new deal stuff. Like I, you know, that that's ridiculous. That that's nonsense, child talk. And, uh, I'm not interested in that. Right. What, I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the, the, the answer that you expect the boss to give. Like, of, of course she has no interest or, or reason to care about, uh, climate change in sort of real sense. Right. Like climate change is like a, a in, like an interesting, easy example to give. Right. Because like we're all in, involved in some sort of denial or what, like one, one version of denial or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, but you know, um, I, well, I don't know. Like, I, I, I feel like I might be like kind of going off in different directions here, but, um, I, I, my, 
my sense is that like I mean the bosses are going to do what they're going to do. The bosses have no clear reason to care about something like like climate change or health care for all or living wages. It's just fundamentally at odds. And um I don't know, like when I mean, even as a teacher, uh to kind of wrap this up, like even as a teacher, I feel like my students kind of uh get a different vibe from me just because like I, I come from a very poor background where I like didn't necessarily know if I was going to have enough to eat all the time as a kid. Um, like, I mean, that's very different, right? Like then, then the sort of the stereotype of like a tenured, um, uh, uh, comfortable professor, right? And, and like I, I, and I use that as a teacher to kind of like connect with people. Um, uh, I cannot imagine being somebody who is in a position of power to make real differences in people's lives and not trying to look for those those moments where you can connect to real people and and uh, look for connections to their experience. And um, I, I don't know, like that, that's just bizarre to me that that we seem to have like an entire leadership class who who postures left that doesn't seem to want to communicate with people. That sounds right to me. It's a big it's a big bummer. Well, we we could talk about the Democrats more maybe in a minute, but um, maybe for now we should turn to Trumpism and something that you wrote recently for the the Bias, the magazine for the Institute for Christian Socialism. Uh, yeah, you wrote a cool article called "Gallows and Political Death Drives." Um, the article plays with a lot of the big psychoanalytic theories that you wrote about in your your book mm. Against and elsewhere too. Um, but yeah, would you just mind telling us a little bit about the uh, the article and and uh, just like summarize it a little bit for us. Yeah, sure. I wanted to, I think more than anything, kind of hammer home this idea that uh, desire does not work in the way that reasonable people want it to, and that you get a better analysis of ideas and uh, inclinations if you look at what people do rather than like what people say. I started it off with this, uh, this, uh, the sort of pairing of, of readings that I have kind of been sitting in my mind for quite some time, but Immanuel Kant in Critique of Practical Reason uses this example when he's talking about the human will to make decisions that are rational. He uses this example that kind of goes that, you know, he says, like, suppose someone like asserts that he's like, you know, madly, lustfully in love with this, you know, this, this, uh, this crush that he has. And just absolutely has to have sex with this person, and the cunt kind of says, you know, if you if you were to say like, okay, you can have sex with this person that you have a, a big crush on, but the moment after you do, like the the next morning, we're gonna like erect a gallows outside of your door, and we're gonna hang you the next morning after you kind of satisfy your lust. Uh, would you do it then? And Kant kind of says. Of course not. Like, like a, no reasonable person would have sex with his crush if he knew that the next morning he was going to get hung from the gallows for it. Um, the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan it, it took this this exact uh, analogy, and in, in one place, kind of early on in his work, he kind of very tacitly, very timidly, kind of says there is a certain person who will, according to what I'm seeing in my uh, clinic, will at least consider doing so. <laughs> and he, he puts it very kind of timidly like that, will at least consider having sex, even if it costs him his life. Uh, later on, he writes an article, Kant with Sod, uh, like the, the, the Sod, like Sod, sadism, right? Like, you know, he, um, 
in in that article, he puts it less prudishly, and he puts, you know, he says, no occasion actually precipitates certain people more surely towards their goal than one that involves defiance or even contempt for the gallows. And in that article, he is saying that he's he's primarily talking about like the revolutionary's aspiration that is the revolutionary that says like I don't care if I'm going to be hung tomorrow or shot tomorrow I believe in this cause like I have to do it there's something in this cause that drives me towards like an insane position of of belief and like you know causes me to act uh, but he also Lacan is kind of referencing this like very Kantian like sexual analogy and saying also actually people have sex all the time, even if they think it's a bad decision or like there's something destructive in this encounter or something. Um, so th- I guess like what I kind of, I kind of built this article around this idea that some people think that people make the decisions that are loaded with desire in very rational ways. And uh, my wager is actually that it makes more sense to kind of assume that people are led by their desire first and retroactively try to come up with reasons for the way that they act, but actually the reasons that the, like the way that they act or like whatever their their uh, cultural or political desires are, it's actually fundamentally irrational. And um, you know, as, as I kind of put it, like contemporary Amer- American conservatism is basically just kind of this weird displaced psychosexual insecurity orbiting Trump right now. Like Trump is the big other who authorizes transgressive cruelty. Uh, Their Oedipal fantasies are telling us something about the unreasonable way that political desires work. It tells us something about the investment in the stupid father, the father who prohibits their satisfaction even before they realize they're getting messed up as they are with COVID-19 and so on. Uh, You know, the disappointing father who provides a model for a disappointing God, the the father that Dr. Lacan calls the great fucker, you know, like that, that was kind of my, my impulse in writing this article is to kind of say, um, actually, you know, people want to think that political desire kind of works rationally and you can kind of reason with it. But like, what if in fact, uh, all of this is completely irrational and all of this is actually destructive in the same way that people make destructive sexual decisions all of the time uh what if what if actually the way to think about um uh like uh i don't know uh like donald trump is is to think of like when he was like sick with covid and he like you know like la- like a month or two ago he was kind of like going on in, in during one rally kind of saying you know, I just want to kiss you all. I, I want to like go out in the, the audience and the men and the women, I just want to kiss you. Like how many people would have taken them up on that? My bet is uh, more than a few, right? <laughs> like, it, it, like it, it, I, I think that that's a more helpful way to think about the way that political desire works is like you, you cannot reason with it. You, like you, you're not going to fact check your way out of it. You're not going to pour Pinocchio's your way into some sort of like semblance of truth that can be kind of a shared reality. Yeah, I think that is such a powerful way of trying to open up an avenue that makes Trumpism make sense. Uh, I feel like, at least to me, the the challenge of Trumpism is that either people view it as a phenomenon of people who are totally unintelligent, or it's like a phenomenon that is just incomprehensible. Like it's a complete impenetrable mystery why people would support Donald Trump or something. But, you know, the, both of those things uh, elude the fact that you can like you can be unintelligent and not a monster. Right. <laughs> like uh, so it's a strange kind of thing. Um, and I guess uh, maybe I could get you to talk a bit more about how. So on the one hand, we can probably imagine the type of person in our own life or whatever 
who who gains a lot of satisfaction out of exactly what you're saying, you know, watching Donald Trump be uh, license all those kind of transgressive behaviors that are in fact destructive, but nevertheless, there's this kind of feedback loop of of enjoyment or something. Maybe you could say a bit more about that dynamic. Um, and then also, perhaps you have something to say about how, like, some people who nevertheless support Donald Trump so strongly also, it seems to me, are like, um, almost like eaten up from the inside out by it. Uh, like, it's almost uh, like the enjoyment that's there feels so sort of dark, like, uh, you know, it's not very celebratory. It's not a, a, a jouissance or something like that, or, or maybe that's all part of it. I don't know. Uh, what do you think um, coming out of Lacan and other tools? How can we make sense of uh, those kinds of forms of desire? <laughs> uh, you know, the good, actually, I, I've already forgotten exactly how you put it, but the, what you, what you said about like a, like a sense of enjoyment and loss, uh, at the at the end there, actually, maybe kind of think of, of Freud's Freud's definition of melancholia, which is to like love something that you feel like is part of you that is already lost. Like, and, and it doesn't matter if it's a real thing or kind of an imaginary thing. It's it's the uh, the way that the ego kind of latches onto something that is already lost. Uh, like that, that's what melancholia is. It's the, it's the inability to actually mourn the loss of something because it's it's in your head and it feels like part of you and like living with you, even though you know you've lost it. And I think that there's an element of that on like sort of the weird cultish right that it, you know, is going to soon have to process that and, and hopefully in not violent ways, but perhaps it will lapse into violence and, and kind of like open, um, oh, like, a, like an open killing field. Um, but but there is that, 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 that same dynamic is definitely there on the left, right? Like, like the aspect of melancholia for a future that will not exist, uh, for, for lives that have been lost, um, definitely for a climate that has, is, is at this point like beyond the scope of anyone even trying to make a difference in um, on the in, on the Democratic side or Republican side, so like that that sense of melancholia and loss, I think, is kind of is uh, exists in basically the same fashion on on both sides. Um, and then um, you had a, a first question where I don't know if you can uh, if you're able to repeat it or if you want to uh, change that. It, I. I um, forget sure, exactly sure. how you you worded the the first part of that question yeah well it seems there's kind of like <laughs> well it probably won't be on the second time around but we'll see the uh uh this phenomenon of trumpism i feel is just you know i'm just thinking of people i know who support donald trump or even people i see whatever on television or something it almost seems like there's kind of two camps like there's there's the trump supporter who who loves the perversity of supporting Trump, you know, like they they get a lot of enjoyment out of exactly the brutality of it. Like that's and, you know, triggering the libs or whatever, like that's really the key. And and they love that part of it. They they revel in that. And then there's this other part that you've been talking about a bit where this other kind of Trump supporter that feels almost like uh, like so, um, so internally kind of mangled or like destroyed by by this whole process of having to support Donald Trump, but also nevertheless, you know, doubling down on it at every turn. So it's this kind of darker. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I don't know, just the, the play between those two things. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, thanks for repeating. I, the, I, the, the second is is much more troubling to me. Right. Uh, the first is kind of like almost like I like the the person that just like enjoys being like a creepy sadistic like like trigger person like like that 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 person is somebody I want to avoid 
but I also kind of like I I think there's a kernel of what they're enjoying that I I kind of get right like I mean they're essentially wanting to stick it to the obnoxious pretentious liberal um, they're wanting to do it by uh, hurting uh, vulnerable people <laughs> uh, especially children uh, which which is maybe not quite uh, so it's such a good thing but but, but they but they but there is an aspect of them of just wanting to say like. Uh, Trump drives liberals nuts, so like, of course, I'm going to support Trump because it's hilarious. And man, I'm the type of person that doesn't particularly care if we're talking about kidnapping and torturing children in concentration camps. That's hilarious to me. Right? Like, there is that type of person um, out there. Now, there is a second type of person that I often like write about, and I have a very specific family member in mind. And I and I usually find that when I describe this person in, in sort of vague terms that I'm about to describe them in. Um, it seems like most people kind of know a person like this, but I have a family member who is, uh, on the edge of death with a terminal disease, uh, who is reliant on a, a type of government healthcare program, uh, without going into specifics, uh, they will lose their healthcare if Trump gets his way. And this, this particular individual has been very excited about basically everything that Trump has done throughout their whole administration, up to and including depriving this person of healthcare. And, um, and when I look at like what this person is actually excited about, and, and this person has told me personally that I deserve to be sexually assaulted for not, uh, you know, supporting Trump. I mean, like it's a very oh kind God. of like Southern, like weird family dynamic of like just absolute cruelty of like you're like you know, Tad, you cannot even be like a human being if you don't support Trump. Like there's something fundamentally wrong with you, and so on. Um, but when I look at them, I, I don't actually see like complete irrationality. I, I kind of see like a person who. Um, the, because, okay, the tip, let me just couch this. The typical liberal explanation of a person like this is that they are being sadistic uh, to, like, they are willing to suffer some sort of masochism in order to be sadistic to others. And my wager is that actually the, the, the masochism is primary um, and they are sadistic to others in order to kind of cover over what, what they are doing to themselves. So to kind of like bring this down to the concrete level, um, in this case, uh, the person I'm thinking of, I think, is on the cusp of death and uh, very eager to deprive themselves of health care by like whatever Trump is doing. Um, it seems to me that they um, have taken a turn, a very kind of um, troubling turn at the end of their life into like revanchist racism, misogyny and so forth. Um, if your kids aren't really calling anymore, if you if you kind of had to confront the fact that you haven't done very much with your life, um, and and you've kind of and chosen to end it um, in kind of like a vituperative, hostile manner, uh, where you're alienating yourself from your own family, it like it seems like it might not be that much of a stretch to kind of say. Uh, you know, like if I'm tearing my whole world apart at, at the very end, maybe I need to like kind of convince myself on principle that other people don't deserve health care either and so that I can justify what I have like voted to do to myself. Um, and um, I don't know that I get like a lot more specific than that. And, and be kind of because of like who I'm talking about, like, I don't know that I want to get like a lot more specific. Hopefully that kind of makes sense of, of like the idea that I'm talking about is my wager is that actually instead of people being sadistic to others, kind of like as a, as a 
and like suffering a bit of masochism as like a, a cost to being able to be sadistic. You know, like the, the typical liberal explanation of like, why do uh, why do most white women uh, support Trump? Well, it's so that they can be cruel to black uh, people. Um, my my wager is that like yes, that is true, but actually there is a there is a deeper and more pathologically fundamental problem where people actually want to destroy themselves first, and they will destroy others in order to justify the destruction that they are doing to themselves. And if that sounds nuts, I just want to ask you to consider any addict you have ever met in your life. <laughs> like like there there is an, there is an element of self-destruction that produces a bodily sense of enjoyment. And it's actually weirder when people break out of that than when people uh, you know like uh, take control and very kind of like consciously come out of that. And so so I I think that that sense of self-destructiveness is, is exactly what we're seeing with something like Trumpism. Um, and it kind of mixes in with legitimate issues of like class struggle and 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 division and so on because uh, we're we're talking about a sort of self destructiveness that is layered on top of uh, real problems that neoliberalism has inflicted upon people that that gives them actual ground to uh, to justify their self destructiveness. Man, that's such an interesting thing. I I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I I. I'm not going like I fully understand exactly the ins and outs of this because I feel like I'm still getting my mind around it. Uh, that it's a lot to think about. That's all I'm trying to say. But I think I've seen things like this play out in other capacities too, though, right? Like, well, we were talking a little bit about the minimum wage earlier, and like, um, I was I was watching a lot of that happen closely in Florida, and like a lot of the a lot of people who are responding to raising the minimum wage would say say things kind of in the same register as what you're saying here, though, that like. You know, um, my life, my life has already been destroyed by not having, you know, a living wage. And uh, and I, and I'm and I've made it so far or whatever. So, like, people should just kind of, like, deal with it. It's a sense of which, like, you, you know, you don't want to fight for this thing or uh, or or, you know, you've given your life over to, like, um, protecting a certain status quo. You don't want anyone else to have mm -hmm. it either. And uh, I mean, I think what you're saying makes makes sense, but it is uh, it's a counterintuitive way of thinking. But I, I appreciate it um, just the mm -hmm. same. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that that sadism though that we find in Trumpism. Um, I think it's so fascinating the way that you, that you've worked it out here. I mean, psychoanalysis does this cool thing where you know it it, it takes something that we think is straightforward and flips it and, and shows us kind of like the very complicated nature of things. But um, in your in your article, you say you say this only in Trumpism we find a sadistic leader who wants to be desired, loved really, since he has never been loved. <laughs> That's good. Um, and we also find masochistic followers who want to be big, strong sadists. The effect is that the rest of us suffer in their in their misery by proxy. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's kind of what you're describing here. But I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about the the last part, right? The the that we're we're suffering. Um, we're suffering as proxy. Like, how does that exactly work out? It's such a fascinating. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so like a, a very eye-opening moment for me was in like reading Lacan's tenth seminar on anxiety, where he describes like he's uh, so like sadism and masochism are kind of like like surprisingly uh, not very big topics in the psychoanalytic literature, like, like comparatively speaking, like, I mean, they don't come up nearly as much as you would kind of think that they do, but in Lacan's 10th 
10th seminar, he's, he's talking about sadism and masochism as kind of two poles of a, of the same thing. Uh, and like psychoanalysis often views this, like you, like there's the seer and the, the being seen, there's the acting and the being acted upon, like they kind of work in a bipolarity, like very often. Uh, but so like sadism and masochism kind of have this like fundamental relationship. And Lacan at one point says something that I felt like gave me a kind of political insight that I didn't quite have before, where he says, and, and I have this quote in my article, um, it's not so much the other party's suffering that's being sought in the sadistic intention as the other party's anxiety. And I think that that was a very kind of interesting, because when you think of sadism, you usually think of like somebody hurting somebody else. And Lacan kind of says like, no, that, I mean, like, obviously that's not how it works. Like if you, if you uh, like have ever engaged in any kind of like, like sexual encounter with like a, a like an erotically sadistic like component, uh, you're not actually trying to hurt your partner, right? Like, you, like there's a, like a, a sense of like heightened anxiety or tension, uh, but it's, it's, you're not actually trying to hurt the person. You're, you're like, a, like you're trying to introduce uh, something that is like uh, exciting or interesting into this component. And so it's like the way that Lacan kind of frames it is like, it's not you know, like when it comes to sadism, it's not the other party's suffering that you're seeking. It's like their anxiety. Um, and I, I think that that's kind of very interesting because like, if we pull this out of the sexual realm and put it back into the political realm, uh, we see this, like this enjoyment in triggering, right. Which is, which is producing anxiety uh we see we see this like all of the time right like it's kind of like a standard joke on the right now is that you're like you're basically living every day to like trigger the limbs and so forth and what they're trying to do is not like not necessarily like literally hurt you but to produce an amount of anxiety that you will respond to right so that's sadism right like they're getting uh what a psychoanalyst would say a type of jouissance like a, a certain libidinal satisfaction out of getting a rise out of you, out of getting a, a certain anxious response out of you, um, and uh, and and so that's what we're dealing with, right? Like there's a kind of a whole political organization, a whole political identity built around getting uh, anxious responses from somebody else. Now that is, in this case, I am describing something that is. Uh, I want to be very clear, uh, uh, crude and abusive at best, right? Uh, like, like the, the, I don't mean to like be defending this behavior whatsoever, but what the right is just trying to do with like, you know, ch chanting like Trump, you know, four more years, eight more years, 12 more years or something like that. Uh, like whatever, whatever like configuration they're, they're, um, uh, you know, chanting the slogan or whatever else. Um, like Trumpism is all about sadism, but like not necessarily first and foremost about hurting somebody. It's about producing anxiety uh, in the other person, which is like a sign of strength in the person that's doing the producing, right? So, so it's, it's it's helping like Trumpers like feel strong because they don't feel strong, and they and like the only way that they can feel strong is to make other people feel like they're suffering, um, and so. Like, yeah, and so, so that's on the one hand, like, um, yeah, I guess, like, another kind of important aspect of, of my work is that I'm always kind of thinking about how uh, followers are trying to emulate a certain component of what they value in their leader, but they never quite get it right. So what they do instead is they, uh, you know, like, they're trying to emulate the, the perfectly anxiety-free, uh, the, the father figure, the great fucker of, of 
of Trump, Donald Trump, right? Like the, the person who can hurt people and not care about it. Uh, that, that that's what the Trumper is trying to Im- like imitate in Trump. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, though, like what they're what they're trying to emulate is kind of like a, a facade. It's a farce, right? Like actually, Trump is severely wounded. He's never been loved. He's never been even respected in his life. He's very clear on that. So he's this very wounded individual who has figured out that the best he can get to being respected is to bullshit his way into getting to people to like, you know, respond to him and react to him constantly. And that's, that's the closest thing that he gets to respect is getting people to like follow what he says because they're constantly trying to respond to him. Um, so his followers, you know, think that he like has it all. Trump knows that he doesn't have it all, but he can't admit that to himself or his followers. And so like you end up getting this weird kind of like sadistic, weird roundabout relationship where the saddest, most miserable, stupidest, awfulest person in the world, uh, who honestly probably wants to lose this election and just die in a hole as soon as possible, um, has like uh, a, a, a something like at least like according to our polls, according at least 70 million people who want to be like him uh, and, and, and think that he has it together and are going to enact that by creating anxiety for the rest of us. And so, yes, of course, the rest of us um, suffer by proxy of just being around this. And, and uh, you know, like the, the, we go deeper into it, the more that we believe that, um, anybody's actually enjoying any of this relationship, right? Like the more, the more that we actually think that the Trumper is, is, is legitimately enjoying even a moment of this, like we kind of get sucked in and, and into the same vortex. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I think that's really illuminating. Um, in the weeks leading up to the, the election, I was doing a lot of text banking around like various um, uh, amendments and propositions and, you know, other election bullshit. And like, I mean, exactly what you're saying is exactly the experience I had with people who who were who were Trump voters, right? That they're always trying. Their first response was, you know, I wasn't even necessarily campaigning for a candidate. I was campaigning for these different propositions and whatever. But like, regardless of what I was actually asking them, they'd always be trying to say something horrible to me about and about how you know about Donald Trump. And um, the point, like you said, though, it's a, it's creating anxiety in me, trying to trying to trigger trying to trigger me, I guess, as like a person texting them mm. all of that to say it's it's an extremely illuminating insight into this like weird thing i guess i've been experiencing over the last few weeks um man sometimes i think psychoanalysis has a tendency to see like sex everywhere where it's not but now after you've described that and i'm kind of putting it together i think that it's probably true <laughs> that, that sadism and the, like, the sort of sexual aspect of it seems uh seems right on well, yeah, no, I don't think that there's, it's not that, that sex is everywhere. It's that like people have sex the same way that they, they view other fundamental like kind of relationships. Right. And, and, uh, you know, like people who, um, like, and I know that you kind of said that as a joke, but like, I, I want to treat it seriously as a second, uh, just, just to kind of say like, yeah, a, sure. like, I, I, like I, I think that that is kind of like a horrifying thing that we're, that we're confronting right now. Right. Is that, um, is that like a, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of like, I mean roughly seventy million people in America like think that it's really cool to hurt people right <laughs> and and that that inflects their sexual relationships also um, in in ways that are are very concerning and kind of underhanded and like we know that we don't have data on 
but in public, it's it's like it's, it's hilarious to vote for the stupid game show host who is known for torturing, kidnapped children <laughs> in cages. Right? Like I mean, like it's, I mean that that's kind of like the 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 horrifying thing is that like all of this is really funny to a lot of people. Yeah. That is the horrifying thing for sure. Um, well, as we sort of round the bend toward the end here, I, I'm I'm really appreciative of how much you've put on the table in terms of uh, outlining maybe some good tools we can use to try to understand the the not understandable or whatever it might be. Um, but one thing I really appreciated in your article too is that you do talk a bit about how um, you know if we really want to address the phenomenon of Trumpism, it's not a matter of uh, fact-checking it or coming up with the unforced force of the better argument or whatever, but it's uh, it, it has to involve building some kind of solidarity among people to, to build some other way of, of being and thinking. Um, could you maybe close this off with some thoughts about that? You know, what does it mean to organize against Trumpism? What does it mean to uh, build a different, maybe like um, psychoanalytic or political ecology where Trumpism can be sort of met with something different, some other way of funneling desire or something like that. Yeah, 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 sure. I mean, like, uh, where, where I end with this is to, to say that a healthy future democracy might need to force a prospective fascist against their will, if necessary, uh, to have health care or housing security or living wages or dignified work. And, um, in, in I actually, I really appreciate this question because actually in our our previous interview, like when I talked to you guys last, I I was listening back to it at one point, and I noticed that I had used the phrase uh, like human nature, which which is kind of which is not like a like a it's not like a like a terribly awful mistake to make for a Marxist, but it is a bit of a mistake because <laughs> so much gets packed into that term. I mean, it's not as if we don't have any sort of nature whatsoever, but a lot of, of very kind of like stupid and unreflective things get packed into the term human nature whenever people say it. And so it's best for a Marxist to properly uh, avoid that kind of statement. Right. Um, and, and so I, like, I just kind of wanted to, I mean, like, I guess to kind of like round that out is like uh, my position on this is to kind of say that, I think that Marx came up with a, a very important axiom when he, you know, in like his critique of political economy, he says, you know, it's not the the consciousness of man that determines their existence, but on the contrary, it's their their social existence that determines their consciousness, right? And um, I like I often don't know quite how to perfectly reconcile Freud and Marx, or Lacan and Marx, um, but my intuition is that human beings have uh, certain impulses that existed pre-capitalist, and they are exacerbated and modified uh, in, in sometimes surprising and horrifying ways by capitalism. And what we are kind of on the cusp of here is like Trumpism is not going away, right? Like uh, my assumption is that Trumpism comes back in four years from now in some sort of like form or fashion. I, I don't know that like I completely buy the, the fear of like a smart Trump, but that isn't for a number of reasons that doesn't completely like pan out to me. Um, but I am concerned about like the, the, the sort of like the, the sheer thrill that we've kind of seen of cruelty in the last four years. I am very concerned about like where that goes long-term. And so like in, in my article, you know, as I kind of say like Trumpism or, or whatever we want to call this iteration of conservatism, it's not a psychologically abnormal 
events, right? It, it, it's unfortunate that fascism is uh, pathologized as some sort of anomaly. But like those of us who are taking a Marxist analysis of this problem seriously need to focus on material causes. So conservatism exacerbates aggressive impulses in the psyche, which long predates capitalism, of course. But collectively, we get no cogent solution outside of class analysis, right? Like we need the Marx and the Freud to understand the underlying logic of something as vacuous and as tempting as Trumpism, which will remain in some iteration long after the strange year, right? So essentially, you know, at the end of like, a, like I don't know where exactly to draw the line between like white working class and just whiteness or, you know, like a, or uh, just aggression on, on the other hand. Uh, but my wager is still that if we seek to disengage fascist drives, like the, the like everything on my reading of, of uh, theories of fascism gives me, um, what it gives me at the end of the day is that if we seek to disengage fascist drives, we need to mobilize to shift the scarcity thinking, real or imagined, uh, that's used to dial up to xenophobia, right? Like worker solidarity goes a long way here, but much of the population still might desire fascism. So to disengage scarcity perceptions uh, wherever possible is our is our goal, right? Like a, and again, like a healthy future democracy might need to force the perspective fascist, uh, force them against their will if necessary, to have healthcare, to have security, to have living wages, to have dignified work, to not make fun of them for being like a white, white rural person in America, but instead to like make sure that they are taken care of so that we can disengage those scarcity modules that are used to dial up the xenophobia. Um, so, so, I mean, that, that's, I guess that, that's kind of like my... Uh, not fully thought out, but like my inclination as like a Marxist with like uh, Freudian sympathies or vice versa um, is, is that like we need to be thinking of ways to um, dial down the xenophobia precisely by dialing up the, the way that we're able to take care of people. Dang, <laughs> that's a good word. Um, I, I think that is a really, a really powerful idea um, to, that kind of brings all these ideas together uh, that you've been putting, putting on the table for us. And I appreciate that. Um, Tad, thanks so much for bringing all this very illuminating stuff about uh, this election and Trumpism and liberalism. I, I think, uh, man, I was feeling really anxious before we had this conversation, and now I'm de, I'm de anxiety. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I feel, I feel better about it all. I feel better about the catastrophe. That's all I'm trying to say. I, I, well, I'm glad that I can serve the the cathartic need here. <laughs> uh, is there anything that you want to plug or direct people toward at the end here, Tad? Where can people find more about your work or what you're up to? Um, my name is Tad Delay, and I'm pretty easy to find at, at TadDelay.com, at TadDelay on Twitter, and so forth. Um, my most recent book is Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? And uh, I hope to, uh, in the weeks ahead, have some new projects to announce uh but but nothing at the moment so the, i'm kind of um i'm interested in thinking about um uh the fascism and religion and climate change and uh uh and uh you know if, if this is helpful to people then uh, then there you go I, i'm glad it's helpful um I, I guess like the only uh last thing is that in my most recent book i divided up into a, a podcast and i if you search on iTunes, uh, Tad Delay, you can find like a, a sort of a, a truncated podcasted version of my book for free uh, if, if money or time is any sort of object for you. Awesome. It's a really cool podcast and a good book. <laughs> so 
buy the book, listen to the podcast. It's all good. Dad, thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can also go find Tad on Twitter, uh, at Tad Delay. And uh, he has a cool podcast out there, like we just talked about, um, about his book Against What the White Evangelical Wants. Get the book, listen to the podcast. It's good for your brain and for your soul, too. Our <laughs> intro music is by Amaria Armstrong, and our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week when we get this dang Cheeto out of here. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.